Good morning, Mission View. Turn, turn open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We will be there eventually. Believe me, we will get there. But we want to ask the question in the next few weeks of what does God want the church to be? And so we're going to be evaluating that from God's Word. I will let you know that we are going to be going through a lot of different Scripture passages. So if you're taking notes, um, it would be good for you to do so so that you can track along with, uh, with the answer to that question. What does God want the church to be? Now, I know we need to consult the person who is the author of the church, the person who is the leading authority, and of course, that is God. Now, I want you to know that everything that God does is absolutely perfect, but when man gets involved, guess what? It becomes imperfect in terms of the human error and our flesh and things that happen. I don't think any of us have to think too far out to look in our own history where we've either seen from afar or up close where we have seen disaster in a church experience that was in our neighborhood or that we've seen personally. But I want you to know that's not a new thing. I want you to know that that happened in the Bible as well. As soon as, uh, as, soon as the church was born in Acts chapter 2, it was beautiful. Soon after that, we see Ananias and Sapphira. They're in the church and they're there's greed, there's, uh, there's deception that goes on, and so we see that, ta that drama take place in the church. We see in Acts 6, we see where there are those that were not being waited upon and needs in the body that were getting overlooked. By Acts chapter 8, we get to a place where God had already told everybody and uh, the disciples, hey, I want you to go and, and be my witnesses because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the world. Acts chapter 8, guess what? They're all still huddled, huddled around in Jerusalem and they're just comfortable there. And God says, okay, I wanted you to move. You could have done it voluntarily, so I will do it. And so he allowed persecution to come into the church so the church would scatter, so they would stay on mission with what God had for them to do. The idea of what does God want for the church is something that God is orchestrating. He is carrying it out. And it doesn't matter whether we've had bad experiences or good experiences. God is going to carry out what he wants to carry out in the local church. I know sometimes we can confuse issues because we throw terms out there to describe the church. Some of us have grown up where you've heard the term attractional or missional. Or maybe you grew up in a church that had no mission whatsoever it just existed and did church every single week and they didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. And so it gets confusing. But this is why we need to go back to the author. This is why we need to go back and look at the heart of God and see what he developed in the church. And so today really is a theology lesson. It is a theology of the church, the study of the church. And what I want us to understand, I want us to look at the church, and I want us to understand how does that apply to you and I today. And so we're going to look at the church in, in three ways. We're going to look at the church in terms of the concept phase, uh, in terms of the contrast phase, and the birthing phase. The concept, where did the idea of the church come from? Where did it come from? And contrast, what is it in contrast to? Is there any history that is it in contrast to? And what was the birthing process like? 
So I want to pray that God would enlighten our hearts, help our hearts to be open to hearing what he has to say to us today. So let's go ahead and ask him to do that. Dear Heavenly Father, we're humbled by the fact that we get to come before you. We're humbled by the fact that your spirit is, in wor is working in us, that you are working in, in our hearts, in our lives, and that you would take imperfect individuals and want to develop Christ in each of us. Lord, we admit that we're not there yet. We know that we have a long way to go to become like Christ. But Lord, I pray, Father, that you would use your word to help us and help us specifically today to understand your bride, your church. Lord, some of us might have an, a mindset that isn't right with the church. Help correct it with your word. Help us to see it from a fresh perspective from what you want us to understand. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's start with the concept of the church, and we'll start with the word church itself. It is the word in the original language, ecclesia, and it means to be called out. And so the very first place that the word church is used in, is in Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus is, uh, hears the profession of the disciples when they say, yes, you are the Messiah, Jesus is going to make a statement, and in that statement he will use the word church. Now we'll get to that in a minute. But what you need to know is the idea of the church is that we are called out. We are called out and set aside in the world. That doesn't mean that we ha don't live in the world. It's saying that God is setting aside an instrument of his to be used for his glory. And so that is what the church is. It is a group of Christ followers that have desi desired to follow him with all of their heart, with all their mind. They've, they've denied themselves. They're, they're taking up their cross, and they're willing to follow after Christ daily. So that is what the church is. We are called out ones. Now keep that in mind, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But where did it come from? Where's the idea? Well, it was first mentioned in Matthew 16. It wasn't in the Old Testament. There's some people think, well, of course the church had to be somewhere in the Old Testament. No, it wasn't. Because the Apostle Paul, referring to the church in Ephesians 3, said, the church is a mystery. It's a mystery. A mystery is something that was previously unknown, but now has been revealed. So the church was a brand new concept. So when Jesus says something about the church, the disciples are like, what's that word? What's he talking about? The church? What's that idea of the church all about? And Jesus would unfold it to them. But this is what Jesus says upon uh, Peter being the spokesman for the disciples after he said, you are the Messiah. This is what Jesus said to Peter. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, at first glance, some would assume that the church was meant to be built upon Peter because of the word formation here. In fact, the, the Catholic Church would hold that Peter was the first pope to the church. But if you understand the, the grammatical rules in this verse, you can't come to that conclusion. This is why. Peter's name was Petros. That is a masculine name, O-S, at the end of his name. It was a nickname that Jesus had given him. It really meant little rock. Peter, you are the little rock. His real name was Simon, son of John. And so that was his name, but his nickname was Peter, the little rock. 
And then he uses in the verse, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, if in the Greek language, if he was referring back to Peter, it would be masculine as well. But it's not masculine. When he uses the word rock, the actual word rock, he uses petros, which is A-S. It is feminine in, in gender. And so what he's doing, he's saying this petros, which means huge protruding rock, is in contrast to Petra, this small rock. And so what he is saying, Jesus is saying, I am going to use you, Peter, but I am going to build this church upon the rock. He says it in Caesarea Philippi, where there is a huge rock with, a, with water coming out of the base of that rock. I've been there. I've seen it. It's incredible. And so he is making this contrast to understand that the foundation of the church would be Jesus himself. Now, this is verified after the resurrection when Paul is penning a letter to the Ephesians, and he writes to the Ephesians about the construction process of the church. This is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, so then, he's writing believers, he says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. He's trying to tell the believers, you're unified together, but you're built on something built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and here it is, Christ Jesus himself being the what? The cornerstone. Now, by the way, that word cornerstone comes all the way from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied about Christ being the plumb line and being the cornerstone. So there was hints of what Christ the Messiah would do. And then he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Now notice the construction process that he's talking about in regards to the church. He's saying Christ is the foundation. And upon the foundation stone of Christ is the apostles and prophets. And guess what? Above that is he's building a metaphorical temple and there are rocks that are being put in there and every one of you, when you came to Christ, you became a rock that is being mortared into this metaphorical temple called the body of Christ. There is a greater universal body of Christ of believers all around the world that are part of this metaphorical temple and guess what? This temple has legs that can move around and share about Jesus Christ. And so we are a part of that and this is what he is trying to help us understand now we'll come back to this idea of the temple a little bit later now this is the concept this is where the idea of the church came from now before we move on to the next phase the contrast phase i want to point this out i want to point out that the problem comes in the church back then and now when the church doesn't live up to being ecclesia when we aren't the called out ones, when we are not living separate and living a, a life that is different from the world. The problem back then and the problem even today is that sometimes the church starts to look like the world. Read Revelations chapter 2 and 3 sometime. God actually pinned a letter through his messenger to seven different churches. And of the seven churches, he had a lot of harsh things to say to the church back then. And the biggest criticism is, you left your first love. You left your first love. 
See, the foundation of the church is Christ. And if we don't have a passionate, faithful relationship with Jesus Christ where we're in love with Jesus, give me Jesus. Everything else can go, but I got to have Jesus in my life. If I'm not passionate about that and we've forgotten our first love, then everything else gets out of sync. Dear body, before we move on, I think it's so important that you realize this. Our sense of existence, our purpose, our mission, it all flows from a deep intimacy with God. We have our mission statement up here. We want to make disciples that have an intimacy with God, community with each other, and influence in the world. But let me tell you, we will never understand true biblical community. We'll never understand the impact that we can have in the world if we don't love Jesus. If the foundation isn't there in our life, then none of this mission can be obtained. If the church's strength is measured by our love for Jesus, then here's the question we need to ask. Uh, how are we doing? If the church's strength is measured by our love for Jesus, love for his word, how are we doing? We move on. The contrast phase. Let's understand the church. Now, here we go from the time of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we're going to about the church is going to start in Acts chapter 2. We come to a place in Acts chapter 1 where it is a transition phase. It's a transition place where the disciples are waiting for the church to come. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for something to happen. And, and, and Jesus is just about to ascend. And as we see some incredible words that Jesus gives, actually his final words that he gives to his disciples in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his final words for the disciples. Now, I want you to know that I believe that these final words that Jesus gives to his disciples were some of the most important words that he would give. Now, I understand that because when you're giving your last breath, what are you going to say? I picture a day, someday, maybe I'm a hopeless romantic of how I'm going to pass on from this world, but I see myself on my deathbed, and I see my children, my grandchildren. My wife is going to outlive me, so she's there too. My mother-in-law's there too. She's going to outlive me. <laughs> she turns 88 next month. And I'm sitting up in my bed, and I'm getting ready to breathe my last words, I will tell you that I will not tell them, please take care of Fluffernutter, our dog. We don't have a dog named Fluffernutter, but who knows, by then we might. I'm not going to tell them that. I'm not going to ask them something ridiculous. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say what's so passionate on my heart, that live for Christ. Don't fear don't fear. Just live for God with all of your heart and allow God's power to work through you. That's what I want my kids, my grandkids to know. And this is what Jesus allows his disciples to know just before he ascends. And he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. Now, let me ask you, what in that verse was optional? 
The Holy Spirit coming? Wasn't optional. He was coming. Being a witness? Nope, wasn't an option. They all had to be his witness. He's saying, you're going to be my witnesses. Going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world? Not an option. He is giving them the marching orders of what was going to happen. Now, there's a legendary theologian. His name is Vance Havner. Vance Havner made this statement. He said, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Do you get that? That's what's going to ignite this world, and that's exactly what Jesus was telling the disciples. He's saying, you're going to get power. You're going to get, and the word he uses for power is the word we get, our word dynamite. You're going to have dynamic power. It is the same word that was used in terms of the power to raise Jesus from the grave. The very power that rose Christ from the grave is the power that's going to work in each and every single one of us as a Christ follower, and you will have that power. Now, I want you to know that that power was promised back then, and it's still in effect today. And if you are a Christ follower, you have that power working within you. Some people say, oh, I can never witness for Christ. Yes, you can if you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Jesus didn't give it as an option. He said, you will be my witnesses. He was talking to all the believers then and now. He's saying, this is what you are going to do. So here we have this group of people. There was about 120 of them at this time. They're all gathered together. They've heard this idea of this power that's going to come. And they're wondering and they're waiting. They're all together in prayer. But they're waiting, and they're waiting. Don't you hate waiting? When I'm at a red light, I hate waiting. When I'm waiting for test results, I hate waiting for the results. I hate waiting to hear whether I got the loan, whether or not the, I got the job promotion, whether I got... You know what I'm, what, this feeling of waiting that we don't like, but God uses it as a pause, a pause for them to think about where they are. So they knew Jesus' words. They knew them, and they knew things would be different. But how? This is where the contrast comes in. I want you to understand what it was like for all 120 of these Jewish believers that were sitting there waiting. I want you to know what it was like for them. See, for the Jewish worshiper, they lived by the law. And in the law, they were to fulfill the Sabbath. And they were to fulfill that Sabbath, and they were to go to the temple on every Saturday for Sabbath worship. And they, if they couldn't go to the temple, they could go to a nearby synagogue. And so when Jesus is saying, you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world, these disciples had to be thinking, well, there's no synagogue in the uttermost parts of the world. What are we going to do? Jesus is developing a system that gets away from the synagogue. Jesus, the, the, he's going to do that. They were people that were living by the Ten Commandments, which was their moral law. They had civil, civil laws to carry out or ceremonial laws to carry out. When they sinned, they were to sacrifice a goat or a lamb for their sins. 
And through the death of that animal, they saw that the wages of sin of death. This is what worship was like for them. Now, please know that they lived separate from everybody else. The, the Gentiles were in the court of the Gentiles. There was a court of the women, and then there was the court of the men. And then there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go one time a year. So everybody is segregated throughout this system of worship. And as a result of that, it became highly ritualistic, highly segregated, and it was easy for the people just to kind of go through the motions. We have the same problem today. But please understand, when God set it up, he set it up on the system of belief. And they used Abraham as their example. Genesis 15, it says this, Abraham believed God, believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. What he wanted for his people back then, as for now, as in now, is he wanted faith. But as a result of this ritualistic society, these people just started going through the motions just going to church or going to synagogue every Saturday. It was part of the routines. Take the sacrifice. Do whatever you needed to do. Take the temple offering. Do all these things, and it just became rote. It just became regimented for them, just a system. Now, what didn't help the matters was the religious leaders. They were people that became separate from them. They were the ones that were righteous and everyone was holy. They would go through the marketplace with long, flashy robes. They loved the the special place at a banquet. They loved titles. Oh, man, did they love titles. Read about it in Matthew chapter 23. So this is the system that these Jewish believers are coming out of. Now, this is the system in summary. It was temple-centric. It was under the law. It was separation and it was ritualistic. Then along came Jesus. And Jesus in his ministry did something so different. He moved 12 motley disciples from the way that they were to people that had a relationship with the living God. And it was a process. And so he taught them. He taught them in his earthly ministry. He taught them that he didn't come to destroy the law. He actually wanted them to understand the law was to point out their sin and their need for a Messiah. He said this. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus also didn't live separate lives like the religious leaders. No, no, no. He was eating with sinners. He was going to the parties. He was talking and engaging in people. And this is what one scenario that happened in Mark chapter 2. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when they saw that he, Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And finally, Jesus didn't call people to the temple. You know, in fact, Jesus went to the temple on two different occasions and overturned the table. He knew that the temple had become this ritualistic center where they had forgotten what it was all about. What he did do, though, is pretty audacious unless he's God. He called people to himself. He said this in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here we have it. In contrast to this temple-centric, under-the-law, separation, ritualistic, we have Jesus being center. We see the law being fulfilled. We see unity happening in Christ, and we see relationship. So this is the contrast of the disciples that were sitting there waiting for something new to happen. This was their background, and this is what Jesus had taught them, so they knew something was going to happen. Now, before we move on to the last phase, I want to draw an observation about the process of Jesus' ministry. And I want us to ask the question about what was it like for those 12 to become believers, to become fully committed disciples, meaning followers of him. So if I were to draw a line to describe Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, here's my question. When did the disciples get saved? When did they pray the sinner's prayer? When did they bow the knee and ask Jesus into their heart? Well, all that terminology you're not going to really find in the New Testament, but here's what we find. Here's the question. Was it at the beginning of their ministry? Probably not because they were known to be rough fishermen and a tax collector. In Acts chapter 4, they look back on these guys and say they were un these guys were unschooled individuals. There was a lot built into that statement. So probably not, probably not then. Well, was it in the middle of the ministry? Was it in the middle by the time that they started understanding that the kingdom of God was at hand and Jesus is sending them out two by two? Was it at that time? Well, possibly not there either because we know in John 6 that a lot of those disciples eventually fell away. They didn't follow Christ anymore. Well, was it at the end of the ministry? Was it when Jesus, when they finally made the pronouncement that you are the Messiah? I would think by then that they really had a relationship with Jesus Christ. But I'm not certain. I'm not certain exactly when it was. We do know that Peter kind of messed up right after that he made that famous pronouncement. Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm going to go to the cross in order to save you. And Peter takes him aside Jesus, come here. No, you can't do that. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because you do not have the things of God on your mind. Here's the point. In the three years of ministry, discipleship, in the, that discipleship process, evangelism was interwoven within that process. See, I don't know when the disciples gave their life to Christ, when they really followed him, but here's what we learn. Evangelism is wrapped up in the discipleship process. And before Jesus commanded them to make disciples, he modeled it for them. He modeled it for us. Now let's go to the birth process. I love when I see children come into the world. Some of you guys are doing a fantastic job. Our nursery is busting at the seams, and I am very encouraged with that. I love that kind of growth. 
I know it makes life hard for Kelly, so help out in the, in the children's ministry. We need that. But the birthing phase is an exciting phase where we get to see the new life. And I encourage you to read Acts chapter 2 for yourself because Acts chapter 2, we see the excitement of the Holy Spirit whooshing in and we see that people have tongues of fire and they're speaking unknown languages to themselves, to other people that's understood and people are hearing about Jesus Christ. Now this is a rare picture of the power of the Holy Spirit that doesn't proceed throughout the, whole, uh, the, the, uh, the rest of the New Testament in that dramatic of a form. Uh, it, the Holy Spirit continues to work, but the point is, that's the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in us. It's still working in you and I. And so here we see Peter. Peter gets up and he proclaims an incredible message, a message of how Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was for them and that they needed to repent of their sin. Now look at Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles, verse 37 and 38. Look what, what, it, what it says here. This is how the people responded to Peter's message. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the passage goes on and says 3,000 people were added to their number that day. 120 plus 3,000, 3,120 believers at this time. And then right after that, we see the first church starts. No one had to tell them to get together. No one told them, had to tell them to worship. They got together and they just started worshiping God. And we learn a lot from the birth of this first church. Listen to verses 42 to 47, and I want to draw just a few points out of it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the, fellowship, and, to the and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to prayer. And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they all had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. You know what we see here? First thing we see, key element in this church, was worship and discipleship. I put them together. Worship and discipleship. They're interwoven. You can't tear them apart. They were, having the, they were taking in God's word. They were having, uh, uh, as they were dedicated to God's word, they broke out in prayer. They were uh, praising God with their hearts and probably song. This is, that would have been their custom. They were having com uh, bread, breaking bread together as it Christ had demonstrated, as we will do next week in communion. And so this is what they did together. They worship and they disciple together. Here's the point I want you to get here. I want you to take note that in this was passion. In this was the intimacy that we're talking about. 
This intimacy and this passion was the fuel of the church. The only reason they could sell all their stuff, the only reason they could serve other people, the reason they could do all the things is because they were a group of people that were desperately in love with Christ. And they saw what Christ had, how he had changed them. And then we see that they had fellowship. Fellowship was the accountability to the passion, to keeping the passion alive. The word fellowship means to have things in common. Another word that's used is the word together. It means literally one heat. In other words, when they got together, they warmed each other spiritually. They kept each other hot for God, and they were living for him, knowing that they needed him. Now, I believe God designed fellowship because he knows we're, we're like sheep. Sheep go astray. And he wants us to come back and he wants us to be together. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We'll talk about this idea of community next week. The third thing we see is service. They started serving each other. They did this by selling possessions. Now, I want you to know some people would be advocates that this was the first case of socialism in the Bible, or maybe a case of socialism. This wasn't socialism. They weren't distributing so everybody could have equal an amount. People willingly sold things, and people, they, the, the apostles gave it to those that were in need. The important thing is the attitude of the body was, since I'm passionately in love with Christ, God owns everything, everything that I have. And so I will use my resources for his kingdom. I will use my time for his kingdom, and I will serve. Do you realize God has designed this thing called the body of Christ so that we can meet each other's needs? We need to grow in that. When we have service opportunities in the children's ministry and the student ministries and all the different kinds of ministries, we need to keep our minds open to how can I be a part of meeting the needs because that's how God designed us. And the final thing we see is evangelism. We see people coming to faith. See, please notice what naturally happens in a worship-centric church. The church grows by people coming to faith in Christ. People were coming and seeing what was going on. People that did not know. And they, were, they, they saw in the community. Then they came to the community of believers and they saw what was going on. They saw something that was so different than how they'd been treated by the religious leaders that they grew up with. And it caused them to think about their faith. It caused them to think about their relationship with God. And it says that day by day, the Lord was adding to their numbers those that were being saved. See, God was doing the work. He was using his people. I'm reminded of what Paul says. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. So that's our study of the church. Theology of the church. So we step back and we ask the question, so what? How does this apply to us? What do we learn about this development at Mission View about how we should be as a church? Here's the very first thing we learn. We need to be passionate worshipers of God. We need to be passionate worshipers of God. 
as we just saw, this was the evidence that was in the very first church. The people had a deep love for God, and that love overflowed into other people where they gave abundantly, they shared abundantly, they gave away their faith freely. I said earlier that our, de- our sense of existence, our sense of existence, purpose, and mission all flows from our intimacy with God. And here's the deal. I can't create that for you. I can't wish it upon you. What I can do is I can take you to where you get it. You get it from his word. You get it from his Holy Spirit working in your life and taking greater control of your life. You're not going to get more of the Holy Spirit, my friends. When you gave your life to Christ, he gave you every bit of the Holy Spirit that you're ever going to have. But I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit can get more of you. And we are in a daily process of surrender to him and saying, God, take me, take me, use me. I see my selfishness on a daily basis. Man, I see it. I see it in my own life. And I struggle. I struggle to work at my relationship with God. And I see all these things in life that want to pull me away from being passionately in love with God. Why is there an all-out war to keep you away from this? Because the enemy knows that passionate believers cannot be stopped. And what God wants to do in each and every one of us is to have that passion flow in and out of us. In a moment, we're going to have a prayer time. And that's a great place to start with passion. It's a great place for us to say, God, create it in me. Create in my heart a deeper love for you. I don't want to be like that church that you wrote to and said, you have forgotten your first love. Passion. You see this little equation. We're going to fill this in in the rest of this month. But passion is the starting point in this equation. Here's the last thing I want you to see. To be a Christ follower is to be a disciple. Some of us don't understand the idea of a disciple. The word disciple just means a follower of Christ. We are Christ's followers. And I want you to know that we go through a discipleship process. And I want you to know, first and foremost, God is the one orchestrating that in your life. Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In my life, it's been Jesus that has been orchestrating. It's been God working in my circumstances in life. He used somebody when I was in uh, 13 years of age to hear about Christ. He used somebody when I was between the ages of 14 and 17 to help me get into the Word. He used different people along the way in that discipleship process so god is orchestrating it but here's the deal he wants to use you to make disciples that's matthew 28 he said go and make disciples if you are Christ's follower god wants to use you now i have a little chart up there i want you to see the progression that god took jesus took his own disciples through that we're following as well There was the investigation phase when he took his disciples through. When he told them at the very beginning, come and see what this is all about. Come and investigate. And the thing that we can do as Christ followers is help others in that process. You want to be a part of a discipleship process at Mission View? Be a part of helping others understand who Christ is. We go. 
We have a core, which is our circle of responsibility. We're intentional. We love. You've heard those things over and over again at Mission View. Where do we get them? From Jesus. Jesus gave us the model. That's what we want to do. And we want to help everybody be able to do that with those that are around you. One of the greatest things I think any believer can do is take a lost person and take them to the Scripture and help them study the Scripture together and really investigate Christ. That's what Jesus did for his own disciples. They came and saw him personally. Then we can develop that person. If they're a new believer, we know that there's a development process. Remember what the disciples said? Jesus, teach us to pray. We don't know how to pray. Oh, you pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. And he teaches them. See, there's a teaching process that we as Christ followers have a process. If someone gives their life to Christ, that we help them understand the basics of the faith. That we understand the word, that how to pray, how to walk with God, how, what church, why church, why we do church. And we help them in that development. And then there's the establishment. Jesus established his, uh, the, the further along in that discipleship process in that three years, he established his disciples. We have a responsibility to establish you. Next week, I'll talk a little bit more about how we do that in our community groups. We do it through preaching. We do it through community groups. And I'll talk a little bit more. And ultimately, we want to see leaders. Jesus used these 12 men to turn the world upside down. They had to become leaders. Acts 2, they became leaders. What is it that we have to do to develop leaders? That's the same process we want to walk people through at Mission View. So how are we doing at Mission View? I think we have a foundation, but we have a long way to go. And I'm excited about what's coming up. But before we get ahead of it, we got to make sure we have passion we got to make sure that we are intimately walking with God. So for the next few songs, what I want you to do is just you and Christ. I just want you to be open with him where you're at. You can sing the words or you can pray the words or you can just pray and have your own dialogue with God. But ask God to develop a deeper, intimate passion within your heart.